In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I'm really excited to be bringing on Dr. Amy Ositinsky, who is the author of a new book called Disney Theatrical Productions, producing Broadway the Disney Way, which is based on her dissertation. And we're going to be featuring a wonderful conversation with Amy in just a moment. And just a note, too, before we get into the conversation that this recording was uh, done right before her book actually debuted um, earlier in March. So just making you aware that you can, in fact, buy the book right now on Amazon. And I encourage you to check it out. And you're definitely going to want to buy it after hearing all the interesting insights that Amy has to share. So let's go straight into the conversation. All right, so I am thrilled to have on board, notably Disney, Dr. Amy Ositinsky, who is an assistant professor of theater and directing at the University of Northern Iowa. And Amy is the author of a new book uh, entitled Disney Theatrical Productions, Producing Broadway the Disney Way. Welcome to Notably Disney, Amy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're, I'm glad to have you on board because um, as I was sharing with you before our call, I was uh, reading your dissertation, which I understand um, much of that is in the book, and really thought that it was a great overview and in-depth examination of sorts into really the history of Disney theatrical. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that today, but I was hoping that you can maybe, um, before we begin, just share with our listeners a little bit about yourself in terms of your educational and career background, and then maybe provide some context on your interest in Disney. Sure. Well, I um, I am a theater kid through and through. I actually started as a performer um, 
the first show I was ever in was when I was five years old. It was Stone Soup, and I got to say Stone Soup, the best soup in the land, and everyone applauded. And from that moment, I was hooked. <laughs> so I've been doing theater for a long time. Um, I studied theater in uh, my undergraduate education at the University of Denver, and I uh, have a BA in theater with an emphasis in acting, and then spent some time working as an actor, and then went back to school for uh, a teaching certification and a master's degree in education and taught high school theater for four years. And at the end of that, I um, decided that as much as I loved the teaching and loved the theater, teaching high school wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. So I um, went back to school at the University of Colorado Boulder for my PhD in theater. All the while, um, I transitioned from being a performer to being a director, um, and then in graduate school as well to being a designer. So I sort of uh, refer to myself as a scholar artist in some ways. I'm a scholar of theater, but also a theater artist. I'm also a teacher, uh, and still I'm directing professionally and performing. Um, I performed in several of these Disney musicals over the years as well. Um, so currently I'm at the University of Northern Iowa where I am the directing professor and I direct shows in the main stage theater season here as well as teaching courses in directing and script analysis and musical theater. I last semester got to teach musical theater history, which is um, really one of my passions, my dissertation being on Disney theatricals, you could say that I have a PhD in Disney musicals. <laughs> so uh, I do love uh, researching and teaching musical theater. Wow, what a what a fascinating background. And I'm, I'm interested to hear, to hear as well about your, you made a brief reference to performing in, in Disney musicals as well. So I hope we can talk about that too. Absolutely. Um, at, at what point, Amy, um, in whether it be um, your graduate studies or even beforehand, did you determine that you wanted to study Disney theatrical? Because that's obviously a very niche topic within the overall universe of Disney. Sure. Um, I Coming into my PhD program, I knew that I had an interest in musical theater and in the intersections of popular culture and musical theater. Um, I also often look at the intersections of technology and musical theater, um, being that I've done some projection design and have a lot of interest in sort of the way that digital technology has impacted um, commercial American musical theater. And so as I was working through to figure out exactly what I wanted to write my dissertation on, I actually started with a topic that was way, way too broad. My uh, advisor and I got really excited about this whole contemporary musical theater thing and just went off the deep end on it. And one of the uh, members of my committee, when you do a district, when you do grad school, um, you will have a committee of people who's helping you through the process and who sort of evaluates your proposal and your dissertation. And one of my committee members, she actually suggested, well, what about Disney? Has anyone just focused on that? It was going to be a part of it. But then she said that and I said, you know, that's a great point. I don't know if any scholar has actually gone in and done a history of what Disney theatricals has done and really analyzed how they've done it and what that means for American musical theater as a whole. Um, there had been scholars paying attention to Disney over the years, mostly, honestly, in a negative light. Um, part of what the book examines is the idea that when Disney first came on the scene, they were an outsider. And a lot of Broadway insiders didn't want that corporate money coming in and changing things. And so a lot of scholars sort of aligned with that 
um, with the Broadway insiders and the critics saying what Disney's doing is maybe not so great, but there's been a shift really happening in the last five years with myself and other scholars looking at it saying, hey, wait a minute, sure, maybe there is this corporate thing that's happening that isn't always the best for art, but look at what they've been able to do and how Broadway has changed as a result. Yeah, and I and I think that's such an important element, and and what was really evident in reading your dissertation is that you you're you're very thoughtful in your examination of, for instance, um, reviews of some of the Broadway productions, like when Beauty and the Beast first um, debuted in 1994, yes. and what some of those early reviews were like, and you you make reference to what the critiques are and to what extent they have merit or perhaps do not. Sure. Yeah. And again, it's always tough critiquing critique because uh, it's so subjective. So for me, um, what's been really interesting about the project is being able to go in with a critical eye at a later time and take a look at a plethora of reviews and what people are saying and, and what do I as an expert in musical theater see as valid and what do I see as maybe critiquing Disney rather than critiquing the musical itself. Right. Absolutely. And and I guess I'm wondering, what are what, what are your origins with Disney? Because it sounds like, um, based in describing your, your background, uh, which is very rich in terms of musical theater, but at what point did Disney come into the equation, whether from a personal standpoint or, or professionally? Well, I think um, I've, Disney's always been a part of my life and upbringing. I've always loved music and musicals and Disney movie musicals were uh, one of the ways in which I as a child interacted with musical theater. Um, I grew up in the golden age of the Disney musical movie. Um, my Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, a Lion King, all of these things were a part of my childhood and I saw many of them in the, in the movie theater. It wasn't even just on VHS, but, but that special thing of getting to go to the movie theater to see that new Disney movie. Um, I remember her as a, when I was in elementary school, I somehow came across, it was a, a picture book of Aladdin, of the story of Aladdin, which was my favorite. Aladdin was always my favorite. I And it wasn't because of Princess Jasmine. I was thoroughly a tomboy and was like, nope, I am on board with Aladdin. I don't care about the princesses. Um, <laughs> and so that was my favorite. We would listen to the cassette tape in my mom's car and just I would sing along at the top of my lungs. But I found this, this book of it and I took it to the schoolyard at recess with a tape player and directed my friends in doing Aladdin the musical in the schoolyard. And then um, in that 1999, when I was in high school, I took my first trip to New York City with my high school choir. And the first show I saw on Broadway was The Lion King um, a couple years after it opened. So that, and that is one of, still one of my favorite Broadway shows, just a really spectacular piece of art that um, was, uh, a seminal moment for me as um, a budding young artist and theater person to have that be the first experience I had. I had seen shows on tour and all of that, but to see that live in the New Amsterdam Theater was just an incredible experience. Wonderful, and 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 I appreciate when you when you uh, composed your project, you talked particularly about that point in time and in, in high school and seeing Lion King for the first time. It kind of brought a, a real nice personal standpoint to where you situate yourself in the the research and scholarship uh, you are engaged in. And I'm wondering, you, you had made reference a little while ago to 
that originally your dissertation was going to be much broader scope and then you narrowed in on looking at Disney theatrical. What was what was going on in your mind in terms of thinking of, okay, maybe I've selected my topic or I'm thinking about this topic. Where do I go from here? What were the what were the next steps for you? Well, it was an interesting journey, actually, because uh, coming to that decision, all of us, myself, my advisors, some of the folks on my committee said, oh, yeah, it'd be great to write this about Disney, but can you even do that? Will you even be able to get, you know, inside the House of Mouse? <laughs> Will they let you in? Because Disney is notoriously closed about a lot of things. And so the next steps um, first were to make sure that no one had done anything like this before. So I did some research onto what was out there and really found that no, there wasn't anyone who had really comprehensively looked at the Disney theatrical production model the way I wanted to. And then it was to try and make contact with someone at Disney. Um, and that was the point. I think my advisor, he um, he was uh, Bud Coleman, who's a really prominent musical theater scholar, uh, was my advisor. And I was very lucky to have him as an advisor because he really understood what I was looking at. And he said, you know, great, let's go. Let's see if it can happen. Don't get your hopes up, <laughs> um, knowing that others had tried and failed in the past to get through. And I managed to, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I literally picked up the phone and called Disney Theatricals in New York. They have an office on top of the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street. And I called and I talked to someone at the front desk who happened to not be the normal receptionist. She was filling in, which might be why I got through. And I said, hey, I'm a graduate student. I want, I'm working on writing my dissertation on Disney and I really want to speak to someone someone there about what you do. And she goes, okay, well, I think that would be our, um, our education director. So I'll just patch you through to her voicemail. So I, I got through to the voicemail of the education director and left her a message. And then she passed my message along to Ken Cernelia, who is the resident dramaturg and literary manager at Disney. Um, and I can talk later a little more about what a dramaturg is and all that. But he, um, he returned my phone call and said, hey, I'd love to talk to you. And that building that relationship and making that connection made it possible for me to sort of get the behind the scenes backstage view of what's actually going on at Disney. And um, he and I had many conversations both in person and over the phone, and he connected me to a few others at the company to interview them. So it really was just my willingness to just say, hey, why not? I'm gonna reach out. And I called at the right day at the right time, got the right person and was able to get what I needed to be able to pursue the research. It seems like it's always just getting through that gatekeeper to to get further information. It sounds like that worked out really fruitfully. It did. And I think, you know, I say to my students all the time is you never quite understand the power you have as a student. People want to talk to you. And so just my willingness to, you know, it was scary. <laughs> Calling Disney for the first time was very nerve wracking. Um, and so just being able to get past that and say, you know what, I, I have a purpose here. I have value to bring to the world and to Disney by being the person to do this work. And for them to say back to me, yes, you do. And we're going to help you do it was really gratifying. And it made it I had so much fun working on this project and writing my dissertation and how many um, PhD folks out there can say that, I don't know, but I did, I had a blast. That's so nice to hear. And yeah, I'm, I'm a, a grad student myself and I recognize how you invest yourself in your research and it's so important to love what you do um, yes. because that is a, such a defining factor of, of who, who you are and what you produce. And, and I guess I'm wondering, Amy, as you were at, at the stage in your, project what um did you have a, a specific research question at that point or was it 
more iterative? How did you, what did you what was kind of your goal or end product of um, beginning this really important endeavor? Well, the research question that I came up with early in the process was um, how does Disney theatrical productions as an independent um, Broadway theater producer, how do they function um, as an independent Broadway producer under the umbrella of a multi-billion dollar entertainment corporation? So that was the big broad question. What do they do and how is that tied to their relationship to Disney? And underneath that, came all of this interesting, uh, an interesting exploration of that, because what I found um, was that they're really doing something different than any other Broadway producer, that they've really done something new and different that's a hybrid of some of the other models for producing that have come before them, which was a really exciting thing to figure out. You know, you do research, you come up with a question, and especially in the humanities sometimes, you come up with this question, you do all this research, and you get to the end, and you go, yeah, that's great, but this is just like something else. And when I got into the middle of this and realized that oh no, this is something new, this is something different. They're doing something no one's done before. It was really exciting to know that I had discovered something that is important and that people are gonna wanna hear about because it's different. Oh, absolutely. And and I think um, even looking at just like dissertation work more broadly, the, the goal is to create something that hasn't been accomplished before or at least in a different way. And what was exciting to read was just to really learn about the whole history of Disney theatrical, because indeed there are, as as you illustrate, um, there are, you know, magazine articles and newspaper articles and little things published here and there about um, about the productions or or the division more broadly. But what this really accomplishes is sums it all up. And then under the notion of your research question, looking at the way Disney as a very unique entity enters this Broadway space. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm wondering, because what, what I appreciated, and please tell me, because I know I'm sure there are some minor differences between um, the book and the dissertation, but the the way that you begin your dissertation, you kind of set the scene in explaining um, as you're walking down the streets of, of uh, Manhattan and on your way to meet Kenneth, and you kind of uh, position yourself as like, you're on this exciting journey and you're going to discover a lot. What were what were the feelings? What were you thinking? What was inside of you as you were at this particular juncture of collecting data from someone really core to the uh, division? Yeah, I think um, that that bit actually became the foreword for the book, the description of my visit to Disney theatricals for the first time. Um, and I think, you know, one of those things that no matter how far you get in your career, no matter how much work you do, you know, as an artist, those kinds of things, and you say, oh, yeah, I'm this person who's going to get a doctorate, I'm a, prof- I'm going to be a professor, I'm doing all of this great stuff, there's still this little kid inside of you that gets really, really excited about meeting uh, people who you have idolized or who are your heroes or who have um, had an important impact on your life, and for me, Disney musicals was that thing, and so it was... Um, it was incredibly exciting. You know, I think I describe it as, you know, the the doorman at the theater where Aladdin was playing looked just like the actor playing the genie at the time. And so it was this moment of, um, you know, I talk about it as the genie ushering me into the cave of wonders. And that's really how it felt. Um, not just 
because of it being Disney either, but because of it being the New Amsterdam Theater, which historically is such an important um, theater. And it's an interesting tie between Disney and theater history. Um, the New Amsterdam was the home of Florenz Ziegfeld and his Follies, which um, Ziegfeld came in um, in the early 20th century and took uh, vaudeville and burlesque, uh, which was a type of performance, not the burlesque that we know today, but burlesque in meaning to make fun of. Um, and those types of performance in the early 20th century, um, variety acts had become kind of body and not as family friendly. And he came in and said, I want to do this. I want to do a review of variety show, but that is in a way that's gorgeous and beautiful and, and uh, friendly for the family. And so that was his theater. And he made such an impact on Broadway that now for that theater to have been restored by Disney and to get to go inside and not just see the auditorium, but to see the inner workings was really, um, really exciting for me as a theater historian in general. I can imagine it. It, it sounds like it was just such a, such a riveting and exhilarating experience. At what point um, had you determined that you were going to not only weave in some different elements of Disney theatrical more generally, such as your discussion of Disney buying New uh, the New Amsterdam Theater, but also focusing on three particular productions, um, which encompass a big part of, of the work. Well, in thinking about it, I was trying to decide how I wanted to lay the dissertation and later the book out. Um, and really part of it is the book is a little different from the dissertation, but I really wrote the dissertation with a book in mind. Um, that was a very wonderful suggestion from someone on my committee. So that made the process easier. And as I thought about how to put the book together, um, thinking about my research question, how do I show um, rather than just telling, how do I show what Disney's done? How do I show these models that they've used? And um, it came to um, case studies being the best option for that, that really tracing the production of several of, of the shows that they've done and how they went from idea to the stage, to the afterlife, would um, really be a great way to illustrate what Disney Theatricals has done. And so from there, I said, okay, which shows? And I tried to choose shows that uh, had differing production models, that utilized different ways of bringing the show to the stage in order to show sort of the ingenuity and diversity of what Disney Theatricals has done. And um, I look at The Lion King, which had what you might consider to be a traditional Broadway trajectory in some senses. There's some other things in there that are less traditional, but um, in the theater world, we have something called an out-of-town tryout, where um, it really gets romanticized as well in you know the yesteryear of Broadway theater, the idea that a show goes out of town to work out the kinks and get everything figured out before it comes onto Broadway. And The Lion King did that. Um, and then Tarzan, which was actually probably the most fascinating aspect of my research, which um, really just the production process of that was so different and there was no tryout and they had all these workshops all over the world and all these different things to then Newsies, which landed on Broadway by accident. It was never meant to go to Broadway, but it was so good that it landed there. So those three felt like um, three shows that could exemplify 
three different ways that Disney has produced and also recognizing that there are three different levels of success. If I look at success as a show that um, recoups its investment while running on Broadway, which is something if we talk about financial success, it's making back the money you put in before it leaves Broadway, which um, Lion King and Newsies did and Tarzan did not. Right, right. And I was actually going to ask you about that very point, because I thought that the, uh, it's so helpful to to hear from you the selection of those particular productions, because I was thinking to myself, arguably, Lion King is not only Disney Theatrical's most successful fiscally production, but also really Broadway and theater more generally. Um, and then you have a show like Tarzan that really didn't it swung onto stage, but it didn't stay yeah. there very long, um, no pun intended. But and then Newsies, which, as you described, was and as many of us know, was uh, as a as a film, it was really a box office bomb, but it resonated with a, a, a whole uh, generation of children and became this huge um, unexpected Broadway hit. What were what were some of the surprising things you learned about Tarzan in particular not only through gathering articles and different written materials, but also talking with these individuals with Disney theatrical in particular. Yeah, I think Tarzan, the whole thing just baffled me from the beginning. The how did this company that, that has been so careful about the product that they put out, how did they miss the mark so hugely um, and not anticipate the, um, the very uh, valid um, uh, criticisms of the show. And so digging into that was really interesting. And also uh, what was interesting to me is the afterlife that that show has had, because it actually, um, as I mentioned in the book, as of 2015, it recouped its investment, but it did so um, with resident productions in Europe. It hasn't toured the U.S., um, but it has been since uh, it went to Broadway. It's been playing consistently in Europe. And um, Jeff Lee, who who works for Disney, he's an associate director there, uh, talked a little bit about the um, disconnect between um, the way that shows like Tarzan are viewed in the United States and the way that they're viewed in Europe, whereas in Europe, something like that, that's a big, you know, almost a stadium show type thing, really big, spectacular, is viewed more akin to circus entertainment and circus entertainment, perhaps thinking of it more in the sense of Cirque du Soleil than um, a traditional Barnum and Bailey circus, but that that is its own genre of show in Europe and people really enjoy that, whereas in the United States, musical theater gets attached to theater, which we have this very, um, many people ha uh, have this elitist view of Broadway and Broadway theater, that it's supposed to be um, at a certain place and you can't just enjoy something for the spectacle of it. And so that, um, the way that Tarzan went after spectacle was disconnected to an American audience's expectation of going to a Broadway show, which was really interesting and I think definitely um, played a part in why Tarzan didn't work. There also, I think, are, are other reasons as well, but that was a really interesting discovery to be looking into not only the Broadway production, but also these European productions. I mean, there were multiple reality television shows in Europe um, casting Tarzan. There's one, I think it was German, Vivert Tarzan, like who is going to be Tarzan? Um, and that did, just like the uh, reality show MTV did for Legally Blonde, the musical, 
you know, 10 or so years ago, they did one of those for Tarzan and thinking about it as a piece of popular culture in Europe and the way that it really connected with people there and didn't here was just a fascinating exploration. Absolutely. I, yeah. And I, and I was also really intrigued to discover that the, some of the lighting effects that were used in Tarzan were quite innovative and have apparently been replicated um, and utilized in other outlets as well. Yes, and Natasha Katz, who did the lighting for um, Tarzan, was nominated for a Tony for it, and she is a, a premier lighting designer um, in this country and the world. But yeah, her, I believe it was one of her star effects, the way that she created stars onto the stage that was just so new and beautiful that then others have, have learned how to do that and used it. So technically, there were really some innovative things done. I mean, the whole first 10 minutes of the show is really one of the most stunning pieces of theater I've seen. It, it in its artistry, is really up there with what uh, Julie Taymor did with The Lion King. But unfortunately, after that 10 minutes, the rest of the show is something completely different. And you and you speak to um, the, the just the narrative structure of Tarzan being very distinct between the first two acts and that Jane doesn't even come into the jungle until the end of act one and thus it feels like a separate storyline the as the production proceeds yes yeah we talk uh, in theater a lot actually i was just teaching this last week in my uh, script analysis class talking about um in a traditional linear structure we have something called the inciting incident which is um i speak of it as when you light the dynamite if you have a long fuse it's the spark that lights the dynamite that explodes at the climax of of the play. Um, Ken Cernelia from Disney talks about it as, why is this day different from all the other days? So the thing, the inciting incident that sets off the trajectory of the play, it sets off the rising action to the climax, um, that for the entire play of Tarzan, that doesn't really happen until the end of act one when Jane enters. There's this whole other story that gets told before that of Tarzan being adopted by the apes and raised by the apes. So that's almost like there's two completely different stories with their own trajectory and structure. So it it feels, it just doesn't quite feel right the way that it comes together. Um, because since for this telling of Tarzan, Jane entering is the thing that's most important, the entire first act becomes exposition or the giving of information that's necessary to understand what's going on in the play. So the actual love story and the telling of that story that's supposed to be the central focus of the play gets shortchanged and less than half of the play is that. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And it was also really captivating or just engaging to to see how a show can have an afterlife. And as you uh, briefly illustrated a few minutes ago about how Tarzan has cooped its investment and it it's kind of seen in different capacities based on how uh, theater companies put it on. So despite it closing, what, more than a decade ago, it, it still has a presence to some extent in society. Oh, yeah. And even here in the United States, because uh, one of the neat things about musical theater that uh, those your listeners who aren't theater people probably don't know is that a show that goes up on Broadway when it's done often, um, it will be handed off to a licensing house. And that licensing house manages smaller professional theaters, amateur theaters, high schools, community theaters, all of those things in licensing the show to be performed. And so, like, for example, here at UNI, when we do a musical, we contact 
the licensing house that holds it. We pay them money. They send us materials and they give us the rights to perform that. And then we perform our version of the show. We're required to you know, say all the words, sing all the notes, but we get to do our own production of it. And so there's been a lot of productions of Tarzan that have happened all around the United States um, since it closed and became available for licensing, which is another kind of afterlife for the show that that folks who are not looking at it as this Broadway thing can really enjoy it because there is something fun um, about the show. They also, Disney theatricals also revamped the show a bit before sending it out for licensing. They made some adjustments, which I talk about in the book, to the actual script that helps to mitigate some of the problems with the original version, not all of them, but it helps with that and helps make it easier to produce. Great. Well, and that's and that's very um, helpful context as well. And kind of on the the notion of making changes, um, I, I want to transition to the other shows you cover, uh, among them The Lion King. And you you discuss in in your work how Disney was. It seems like Disney was very intentional in making sure that there was a more emphasized presence of female characters in the stage version of The Lion King from the film. So you talk about how Nala's role was expanded and how Rafiki. Um, was portrayed um, on stage or has been portrayed on stage by um, a female um, actress. And I'm wondering if you could maybe explore that theme a little bit more, because I, I found that to be um, very interesting and obviously very important, too. Sure. I think one of the things I, I've noticed in my digging into Disney theatricals is they really, uh, when they hire someone to do a show, to be the director, to be the creator, they place um, a lot of trust in that person and really give that person a lot of freedom to do the show the way that they see fit. They find the best person to tell the story and let them tell the story while still overseeing them, making sure it's going to be any good. And then at the end, if they don't like it, they can scrap it. But they give that director, that creator freedom. And for The Lion King, that was Julie Taymor, who um, won a Tony for the show. And actually, she was the first woman to win a Tony for directing a musical. There have been a few... Um, women who have won for choreography before that or been nominated, but for musical theater, she is the first woman to direct a show on Broadway to win um, a Tony Award, which is sort of the Oscar of the theater world for directing. So Disney bringing her in is really where that emphasis came from, because to Tamor, making sure that there were females present in the storytelling was really important. So it's not that Disney doesn't hold that as a value, but it wasn't that Disney mandated it. Disney, in passing it off to Julie Taymor, allowed her to make that decision, and she felt that that was essential to the telling of the story. Gotcha. And and my gosh, what what an influence she has had, not only in theater, but for Disney. Uh, a couple of years ago, she was recognized as a Disney legend, and um, there aren't too many people associated with Disney theatrical who have been honored in that type of light, but it definitely speaks to the profound um, impact she has had, not only for Lion King, but also um, more generally. Absolutely. And the Lion King really, um, the success and continued success of that show is really what allows Disney theatrical to do what they do. I mean, now they are a lot more stable, having been in for many years, having their fingers out in many aspects of the theater world. But especially at the time, the 
fact that even the most disdainful critics couldn't say that The Lion King wasn't a wonderful piece of art really elevated Disney theatricals um, in a way that that may not have happened in the hands of another director. So she um, she really is a figure who was incredibly important in the journey and trajectory of Disney theatricals. Yeah, absolutely. No, no doubt about that. And I, I was also um, appreciative in kind of as you talk about your the three main productions that are at the center of your work, you also make references to some of the other shows that Disney Theatrical has put on stage over the years. And um, among them being Aida, which was which was on Broadway for, I believe, four years. And yeah, and and you talk about how it was really a departure for Disney because really, for the most part, most of the things, most of the works put on stage uh, derive from their animated films. But but this was not. And because of the more mature subject matter in the show, they actually created Hyperion theatricals to avoid uh, being associated with the Disney name. Actually, if you look at the um, marketing materials, the poster, the playbill, all that from Aida, Disney doesn't appear anywhere on the uh, public facing side of that. You'll see under producers when you go back into the playbill that they're the producer of the show. But um, one of the things, uh, Aida actually started because Elton John um, and Tim Rice were working, were actually working on from, it's a children's book that tells the story of Aida, um, written by Leontine Price, and um, sort of based on the opera, Aida. And Disney was like, well, let's make this an animated film. And after Elton John had so much success with The Lion King, he was like, no, I want to make it a stage show. So Disney at that point was so flush because of The Lion King, and things were going so well, and it's Elton John. They said, sure, why not? Um, But then the company, thinking about how do we market a show with a double suicide, to an, a theatrical audience, well, maybe we shouldn't brand this as a Disney musical because part of the thing that Disney across the board, uh, regardless of whether it's the studios or the parks or the theater, they're very, very cognizant of the brand promise of what gets promised to you when you encounter a Disney property. And for that, making it Disney's Aida and having it still have the contents that it did, um, they thought that it would be lying to their consumers, to the parents, because you see a Disney musical and you say, oh, great, let's bring my seven-year-old to this and perhaps some of the material. Now, if it were my seven-year-old, I'd be like, great, go see Aida. You know, for me, that's not a problem. But for some parents, going to see a show like that is not something that they would want to take their young children to. So they're very, very aware of how the Disney name is perceived and making sure that they don't do anything to, in a sense, tarnish that Disney name. And that makes complete sense. And it, when I was reading it, I was thinking about how Touchstone Pictures really emerged from Disney wanting to produce and starting to produce more mature content and realizing that they couldn't put it under the Disney banner. And that's how uh, films like Splash um, came to the picture. And I, I kind of saw some parallels in that in terms of the marketing and distribution element. Absolutely. And Sister Act, I think, was one of those, which yeah. is a longer, non-Disney Disney musical. It's Yeah, it's it's interesting to to hear about that. And, and, and kind of on the same front, as far as more um, mature subject matter, I th- even though I wouldn't consider Newsies to be in that same um, vein, there is some more 
uh, non-G-rated language sure. okay. in um, in that in that uh, production. So I was thinking of how like, oh, I didn't imagine the character to say that, considering this is labeled a Disney production. Sure. Yeah. I think I think in general, as I you know, and obviously I'm a scholar of Disney theater, but I am a a consumer of Disney media in general, and I feel like over the last ten years or so, there's been some loosening in what that Disney brand promise is. And it feels to me like the company in general is taking a stand on certain issues or things more so than in the past, um, gearing toward inclusiveness and those sorts of things. And so I think perhaps that Newsies coming out when it did, um, one, because it was not necessarily slated for Broadway, but really the target audience was high schools and colleges. Um, and the fact that it was being lifted pretty much from a film that already existed that had some of that language already in it a little bit. I think that um, at that point, and it being after several successful musicals, that that it was a little looser with what that, that promise is. Because Newsies is still at its heart a story about uh, poetic justice. The good guys get get what they deserve, and so do the bad guys. And it's about... Um, togetherness and teamwork and uh, respect and the the little guy winning, which is a very Disney, um, thematically very Disney. So I think that those things outweighed some of the perhaps uh, a little more colorful language that exists in the play. Absolutely. And we, we speak about Newsies being kind of an unexpected hit. As you're saying, it was kind of destined to be in in um, uh, smaller, different arenas, but yet it had this short-term engagement. It was constantly sold out. Disney kept extending the run, and it ended up, as you described it, really one of the best, if not the best, reviewed Disney productions from the onset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the show is really good, and part of why it's really good is the the book writer, and in a musical we call the script, a book or a libretto. And the, the gentleman who wrote the book is Harvey Firestein, who many folks may know he played, uh, he was in Mrs. Doubtfire, played the brother in that. He uh, played in the Hairspray musical movie, he was Edna Turnblad. Um, oh, not the musical movie, sorry, the, the musical itself, he was Edna Turnblad. Um, it was John Travolta in the movie. Um, but he's, he's a man of the theater, a man of Hollywood, really uh, an incredible Tony award-winning performer and writer. Um, and then it was Alan Menken, who is you know, really seen as, uh, he is connected with Disney a lot because he's written some of the best uh, Disney music. I mean, Beauty and the Beast, which was thought to be one of the best scores on stage or screen um, is Alan Menken. And it's the two of them really coming together to, to make that adaptation. And so it's just a good play. Yes, um, some of the reviews talking about, sure, there are things in there that are sort of glossed over and it could go deeper and it still has a very Disney feeling to it, but it's really, really well written. Um, and Ben Brantley, who is the main critic at the New York Times, who is usually just, he can be brutal. Um, his characterization of one of Mencken's songs, um, the one that Catherine the reporter sings, uh, he's saying it's just a really, really good song. And what a brilliant idea to write a song about writer's block. So sort of this, um, the creatives on that show were so talented. And the fact that originally it just, it was what it was. It played in New Jersey. There was no reason to skewer it. So it 
didn't get skewered. And by the time it got to Broadway and had already been well reviewed, well, the critical establishment who often wanted to dismiss those things kind of couldn't because it had already been given a stamp of approval and it would have made them just look um, like they were petulant children stamping their feet. Yeah, well, and it, it ended up being such a successful production and Disney actually f filmed a version of, uh, once it was off Broadway, uh, I think it was out in Los Angeles, they filmed um, a pr production there with many of the original cast members. And now the the larger public can access really viewing the show through having like a digital copy of new sees the Broadway musical, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Yeah. I mean, so not even just, I mean, everyone can get to that. And really that's something for me as a professor, as someone who teaches theater and musical theater, that excites me because you can't really talk about theater just by looking at the script. And to be honest, for musicals, it's often even hard to get the script because you can't, for most shows, just go purchase a copy of the script. You have to request it from the people who hold the rights and they only send it to you for a certain amount of time as a perusal to see if you want to do the show. So the fact that, that Disney put out Newsies Live on stage and it's accessible is just incredible for the study of theater in general, as well as the dissemination of um, Disney musicals to a wider public, just like, and I love it too, because it really mirrors what happened with Newsies, the film. It, uh, when that came out in, I think it was 1992, um, I remember I actually saw that in the theater when I was a child. Um, and it was just, I mean, it's terrible. It really is just a, um, a terrible film. It won uh, and was nominated for some Razzie Awards, which are the golden raspberries that they give out for bad films. Um, and it got, airplay on the Disney Channel a lot and then came out on home video and all of that. So there are all these kids, actually younger than I am, most of them, who really experienced it there and fell in love with it. And so through this um, home viewing, we're able to know and love this sort of little known Disney property, the way that Newsies then now, you know, I think kids maybe 20, 30 years from now might experience Newsies the musical that same way. Right now it's on rotation at theaters all over the country. Um, I'm actually directing a production of it this coming summer. Um, so it's really very much in the consciousness of theater, but in the, as we move on and it no longer is perhaps the fact that people will still be able to have it and experience it is really amazing. That That's so awesome. It, it sounds like really in every, every possible outlet, you're all kind of uh, newsies pun carrying the banner and yes. really making sure people have access to it. And, and I, I, I saw the show both on Broadway and then the film version. And it's so wonderful to see that there are so many outlets and, through what you're describing and putting on a production yourself, that so many folks can um, can really enjoy this type of theatrical experience. Yeah, and I think Newsies too, in the time it came out, um, I talk a little in the book about the connection to the Occupy Wall Street movement and this idea of the 99% and the 1%, which um, in my opinion is part of the reason it was so successful because it really came at a cultural moment that was perfect for it. Um, but also even now, this idea of, um, you know, the those at the top who are making decisions that affect those at the bottom and how to, it, the most American thing is to rise up. And that's what Newsies does. And so I think it's just in this time, such a, a culturally relevant piece in more ways than one.
it sounds like yeah, you, know, you know, timing can make all of the difference. And Absolutely. and speaking of of timing, I'm thinking in terms of given that you kind of have engrossed yourself so much into the history and legacy and really cultural impact of Disney theatrical. What are your hopes and maybe even impressions of of how Disney theatrical is going to move forward over the coming years in terms of the shows that they develop and how they are created and distributed? Well, um, one thing that is coming up uh, this April is the 25th anniversary of the opening of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. So April this year marks 25 years since their first production, which is really exciting. Um, I think the last five or so years, um, starting with Aladdin, really, and then moving on into Frozen, um, Broadway has started to begrudgingly accept the fact that Disney is here and here to stay, and that you know, some of the stuff they do is a whole lot better than some of the other corporate producers down the block do. So let's let's be a little nicer. <laughs> um, Disney has grown up. I talk about this with Frozen, the musical, which is their most recent Broadway production, in really finding um, finding the ability to have restraint. And just because there might be nearly unlimited funds to do something doesn't mean that the best answer is always the most expensive and most technical technical answer. Sometimes it's simple theater magic that is the best choice. And I think Disney is really starting to find that and to find that voice in how do we best translate these stories to the stage, not just how do we best show off all the cool things we can do. Um, so I think that's part of it. I don't think Disney's going anywhere. Um, there's a lot of Frozen was the second that, I shouldn't say the second, probably a couple weeks after the movie came out and was just a smash hit, Disney decided to do Frozen the musical. That was, there was just no question. It just came down, that was what was happening. I think right now, um, there's a less clear what's next. I don't um, know at this point exactly what Disney has in store next. I do know that um, there is gonna be a production of Hercules um, that's being done this summer. The public theater in New York, which is a, an off-Broadway theater, a, a nonprofit theater company, they do Shakespeare in the Park in New York, and they have this uh, program that's fairly recent called Public Works, where they bring in theater professionals and people from the community to put on productions, and this year's Public Works production is an adaptation of Hercules, which Though I'm not sure exactly if anyone from Disney Theatricals is actually working on it, they clearly have granted the rights and the blessing. Alan Menken is working on it. So there's sort of this new, that's a very new turn. Disney has not given up their material to anyone else before in this way. Um, and so, and also for a place like the public, that's an institution to turn to a Disney property is new and exciting. So I feel like there's a corner being turned, um, both because Disney's been around for a while and because there's this, um, I've noticed it even just in the last five years in the scholarship of musical theater, it started to open up and be more accepted. Um, five or eight years ago, my coming out of a PhD program with a PhD, a dissertation on Disney theatricals, I might have been laughed at <laughs> and not, you know, people on a job market might have looked down at me. But now when I came out and got the job, they were people were excited by the work that I was doing because musical theater and this this kind of musical theater is gaining more um, cultural footing within uh, academia. So I feel like there's a corner being turned um, and that in general, 
the connection between musical theater and popular culture is really being heightened in a way that hasn't been seen since what, what was called the golden age of musical theater. That was uh, 1942 through 64, which was when Rodgers and Hammerstein were writing. They're the ones who did Sound of Music in Oklahoma. Um, and that era, musical theater was the popular music of the time. And though I don't know that we're gonna return to that really, um, just looking at what's going on with Hamilton tells me that uh, there's a lot more connection between pop culture and musical theater. And Disney is so much a part of that popular culture connection that's going on. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried at some point to do Moana, um, just because Lin-Manuel Miranda is sort of, you know, the first man of the theater these days. Uh, it's also a difficult show to do because of the technical elements. But my guess, and I don't have corroboration, it's just an educated guess, is part of bringing him in to do that show was to have something that was more ready to be transferred to the stage. Sure, sure. Well, and it seems like Miranda's definitely in the fold now between his work for Mary Poppins Returns and then yes. also... Um, it sounds like I think he was working on potentially with um, Mankin for Little Mermaid, was it? For the live action Little Mermaid? Yes, I'm trying to remember which one it is. But yeah, he is. He's working on one of the live action uh, Disney musical redos, which also that to me is really a signal. Um, all of these live action, you know, and we say live action in quotation marks. There's a lot of my students joking about how the Lion King isn't really live action. It's CGI live action. Um, but this return to these really, um, uh, the properties of Disney's golden age of animated musicals and now doing live versions of them. And yet they're really just live musicals. So that's really exciting as a musical theater scholar as well. Absolutely. I, I, I think it is an exciting time and it's, and we'll, we'll talk, um, we'll conclude our conversation a couple of minutes regarding how people can get a hold of your book. But I, I do want to ask you, you, you briefly mentioned putting on a production of Newsies. What are your future Disney related efforts or endeavors or interests? Well, for sure, I'm directing a production of Newsies at Theater Cedar Rapids. That is a huge theater in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's about an hour away from me. So that's happening. Um, I also, the book is going to be coming out in March and we'll be doing a couple events, hopefully in Cedar Rapids and Denver, Colorado, some uh, launch events where we'll, we'll be singing some Disney songs and reading from the book. Um, I'm always on the lookout for working on Disney musicals. I, I mentioned I've acted in a few. Um, I played... Miss Andrew and Mary Poppins, who in the musical version she that's drawn more from the book, she's an evil nanny who was George Banks's nanny as a kid, who's sort of the reason for the way he is um, to, in when you see him in the play. Um, and then also I played the wardrobe, Madame de la Grande Bouche in Beauty and the Beast a couple years ago. So I intend to continue where possible to direct and perform in Disney musicals. Um, and uh, to continue writing about it as new developments come forward, I think uh, that I will continue to keep an eye on it. And when the time comes to either update the book or write something new, I hope to be that person that continues it. Also to encourage others who are coming after me to do the same. I know I've got a colleague of mine who's writing about Disney in Asia a lot, and she and I talk a lot about that. Um, there is someone writing a dissertation on Beauty and the Beast that's upcoming soon. Um, I'm actually presenting at the Popular Cult Culture Conference at DePaul University. Um, 
this spring, which the topic is Disney. And so I've put together a Disney theater panel where there's actors and directors and scholars all talking about working on Disney. So I think I will continue to carry the banner of the good word of Disney musicals. That's that's so exciting to hear. And to use another pun, it sounds like there's a continued circle of life in terms of new scholarship being emerging on uh, on these topics based on what you mentioned those other dissertations are covering too. Oh yeah, there was just a book out, the Disney musical on stage and screen that was an edited collection that came out a few months ago as well. So yeah, scholars are starting to pay attention. I'm just glad I got to it first. <laughs> and timing is everything, right? As, yes, as we were absolutely. talking about. Well, let's, let's conclude before we give you the opportunity to talk with us about social media and different ways in which people can get a hold of your book. I, I want to conclude with some Disney-related questions sure. that I ask all of my guests. So the segment um, is called uh, Per Ariel, Asking My Questions and Get Some Answers. So this includes three standard music-related questions, two standard book-related questions, and then a random Disney question. Okay. Um, so this is to kind of reflect the the amalgamation of sorts between uh, music and books on this podcast. So, uh, so Amy, are you ready to answer these questions? I am very ready. Okay. So first off, music. Uh, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Well, that's easy. Aladdin. Favorite song. Aladdin. Favorite song. Favorite Disney song. Oh, gosh. Well, favorite, I meant favorite Aladdin song, I should favorite say. Favorite Aladdin song was probably A Whole New World. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably my favorite I, Disney song. I sang it on a bus one time on like a tour. Someone was like, sing it. And I sang it. So I, I love that song. When I was a high school teacher, I performed that at a talent show with the choir teacher. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. The second question is related to a Disney song, but it's what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, goodness. Um, probably, um, uh, oh, which one? I'm like, it's Newsies. One of the Newsies ones I just had in, I think it was Carrying the Banner. Um, that was stuck in my head. I actually, when I was back in Denver for winter break, did some fight choreography for a production of Newsies, and I had that song in my head for three weeks after that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's a good song, though, so Great there could song, be worse yeah. options. <laughs> Third uh, music-related question is, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh, Disney film with underrated music. Hercules, definitely. That that music is just awesome. And I think hopefully now it's being a little more highly rated as they're working on it for the stage. Yeah, absolutely. Book-related questions. So what is, uh, other than your own, uh, what is the most recent Disney book that you read? Oh, well, that would be all of the coffee table books for the musicals. I think the last one I had in my hands was the one from Mary Poppins. Gotcha. I think those gotcha. were research for my book, so. <laughs> they serve dual purposes, right? Yes. yes. Second book-related question, so this might be a follow-up. So if you could write a Disney book on any topic, so or a, or a second book, uh, what would it be focused on? Well, you know, my dream would be that Disney calls me up and asks me to write one of their coffee table books for one of their Broadway musicals. So if the Frozen one hasn't been written yet, that or whatever comes next. <laughs> Awesome. 
And then finally, so um, this is a random question. So with every episode of the podcast, it's a different final question. So this one is name the funniest Disney film that you can think of. Funniest Disney film. The original version of Newsies. It's so bad that it's funny. <laughs> That's definitely one way of looking yeah. at it. <laughs> Well, let's uh, thank, thank you for answering those. And I hope we can conclude with you sharing how listeners can get in touch with you um, in sure. terms of contact and social media, but also how they can get a copy of your book, Disney Theatrical Productions, Producing Broadway the Disney Way. Yeah, so you can get it. You can follow me on Twitter at The Theater Doctor. It's theater with an R-E. And um, so it's T-H-E-A-T-R-E-D-R. Um, so that's me on Twitter, and you'll see updates about the book. You also can check out my website, which is amyositinski.com, and uh, you can get the book. There is a page on my website that will link you either through Amazon or through my publisher, who is Rutledge, to purchase the book through there. It, um, the uh, release date is March 6th for the book. The hardback will be available on Amazon on the 6th, and the the paperback will be available on the 8th, but you can pre-order from Amazon or the publisher anytime. That's fantastic. Well, I know I enjoyed reading the dissertation. I'll be excited to see uh, how it translates to book form. The cover looked very good. And uh, yeah, no, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Amy. And I, I, hope, I hope the listeners check, check out uh, your work as well, because it's definitely covering an important piece of Disney that really hasn't been captured in in the scholarship so thanks yeah i think the goal with it was to uh do some scholarship but do it in a way that's accessible to everyone so i think the readers will find that it's a good read in addition to having a lot of good information and i'll probably prompt them to want to book a ticket to see lion king or any of these shows uh whenever they have an opportunity to absolutely well thank you again and we hope to you know, come back to Notably Disney. We'll definitely be interested in hearing about some of those other developments or things you have in the works. Wonderful. I hope to do that. All right. Thanks, Amy. Once again, big thanks go out to Dr. Amy Ositinsky for coming on the show um, amidst this very busy schedule and the exciting release of her new book. So again, you're going to want to check it out by going on Amazon and looking for Disney Theatrical Productions producing Broadway the Disney Way. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.